Hello, welcome to Herpetological Highlights, episode 26. Come in, sit down. Uh, today we're going to be talking about annals. And um, Ben's just pointed out to me that this is episode 26. And as we do an episode every two weeks, this means that we've been podcasting together for a year, which is uh, pretty crazy. Although we did, we did release the first three in a kind of block. So we've kind of been podcasting actually for more or less time. I suppose it took us time to record those ones. It anyway, definitely I'd... took us time to record those ones. There was also failed recordings as well. Oh, the first, like the first, ep- was it the first? No, it was the second episode where we recorded the whole thing and then I, my laptop stopped working. Oh. Back in the days when we were actually in the same room. Nightmares. And, and not in different countries. But yeah. Um, but yet the further apart we get, the more reliable the recordings. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, I think also time goes by and we just get a little bit less uh, slapdash with it. But anyway, um, yeah, so today we're talking about annals. And um, well, I mean, annals is a pretty big subject. We're not going to talk about everything to do with annals. We're kind of focusing on some sort of behavioral, some recent behavioral research into annals. Um, so for those that don't know, annals are these small little lizards Um it's a genus of lizard, Anolis, um, which is massive. There's 400 species, and it's the world's most species-rich tetrapod genus. Which is I did not know that. That's quite an impressive uh, feat. I know you'd think there'd be fish with more species in their genus or something. You know, I was thinking shrews, but yeah, okay. Well, yeah, equally, um, and the word. Oh well, they're from the family Dact. Dactyloidae, dactyloidae, Dacti- that is a hard one to say, dactyloidae. Bless you. <laughs> and um, the best I can work out, I know that dactyl is like fingers, because you get like polydactyly when people have six fingers, like Marilyn Monroe had that, for example. Um, but yeah, dact- dactyloidae means the finger resemblers, and they're called that because they look like fish fingers. They taste like fish fingers too, from what I hear. <laughs> Yeah, no. I thought you'd be. I thought you'd enjoy that more than you did. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're really widely studied in ecology and evolution, uh, largely because what they've done. Well, they we should say where they're from. They're from sort of the Caribbean, a uh, little bit of North America. Certainly, they're in Florida and Mexico. So they're kind of from that sort of area around the Caribbean Sea, and. Um, What's the other sea just up there? The Sea of Cor- Sea of Cortez? No, the other side. Sea of Cortez is on the other side. Yeah. What's the one? Uh, by... Gulf of Mexico. Gulf, Gulf of Mexico. Thank you. Yeah. So they're kind of from all around that area, and uh, yeah, they're just this fascinating radiation of lizards where they exist on loads of different islands. In there's like there's I mean there's four hundred species, and um, they come in all manner of colours and patterns. They have this brightly coloured dewlap, some of them, that they used to display to each other, which is like a little chin flap. And when they find themselves on these islands or in these different areas, they tend to radiate wildly and fill loads of different niches and speciate into all kinds of crazy, crazy body types. Um, and But in a relatively predictable manner. Yes, which is one thing that's really cool about them. So you kind of find the same, they call them ecomorphs. So these are like, there'll be an ecomorph for being on the ground or hanging out in bushes there'll be an ecomorph for living on the trunk of a tree etc etc and yeah like you say they they seem to convergently evolve to be similar on all the different islands that they find themselves on despite being Mm. relatively unrelated 
Yeah. But we're not going to do the evolutionary side of things this episode as much. Because that, I mean, that deserves its attention in an entirely separate episode that's all dedicated to Anolis convergent evolution. There is so much going on there. But we're going to take a slightly uh, less, I suppose, grandiose uh, look look at them and more be looking at um, sexual selection and how that can change over different ecomorphs and different locations and what sort of impact that might be having on different species and their coloration and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So we've kind of picked a tiny, a tiny slice of the animal pie to talk about. Yeah, because it is a big pie. Yeah, it's monstrous. Like, it's an amazing pie, and it's filled with lizards. I I was a bit curious about the taxonomy of these things because I mean I don't know much about them, and uh, I did a Google Scholar search for Anolis phylogeny, and it came back with seventeen thousand four hundred results. And then you quietly turned off the computer and went to have a cup of tea. I did, yeah. I just thought, nope. I'm not doing that. That's madness. That's again. It's a whole nother episode if you wanted to dive into that stuff, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, yeah, there's loads of you know, there's loads of research, even you know, quite quite far back, eighties, nineties, two thousands. Um, quite a lot of stuff from Bangor Uni as well, which we're or you have been affiliated with, and I still am. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll touch on that in another episode, I think, in the future. Hmm. If people want it, if if yeah, if people want it, or if they don't, if you if you really want it, you can you can become a patron and uh, request it specifically. You can indeed, yeah. We're still waiting hey. on we, yeah, yeah. Like absolutely, <laughs> if you if you feel strongly about any subject, as long as it's reptiles, we're not doing an episode on. I don't know the merits of meditation, but we'll do an episode on any lizard or snake or turtle or salamander you like as long as you give us a little bit of money or toad always up for more toad stuff yeah less about the toads <laughs> <laughs> never okay so uh yeah i think should we sort of uh start meandering towards the first paper yeah i think just dive straight into it cool okay so this is by kamath and losos 2018 fresh off the press Estimating encounter rates as the first step of sexual selection in the lizard Anolis sagre. And this was published in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences. Mm. So, little brown Anolis, basically. Yeah, that's the common name, isn't it? Anolis sagre is the brown animal. Yeah, which makes them sound quite boring and generic, but they, they're quite stylish, really. They come in a, uh, you know, you can get stripy or diamondy ones. Hmm. Yeah. Or diamonds and stripes, it would seem. Okay, so annals are, as well as being quite cool looking, they're also often invasive species. And uh, there's green annals from North America. These are just a few examples. There's annals invading loads of different places. Um, but green annals from North America have caused insect population crashes on Japanese islands. And kind of conversely, instead of leaving America, going into America, these brown annals that we're talking about now, which are originally from Cuba and the Bahamas, have also invaded Florida and lots of other places. And uh, what, one of the things... What hasn't in Florida? Well, yeah, I mean, Florida... You, you can go to Florida, it's like walking through a zoo. Yeah, it is. And a lot of it, you know, there's suggestion that a lot of that is due to uh, people deliberately releasing animals. 
Well, some of it definitely is. Yeah. That chameleon, chameleon example. Yeah, yeah, the panther chameleons. I think there's yeah. veiled chameleons as well. And probably Jackson. I know there's Jackson chameleons in Hawaii. But um, yeah, this brown anno, uh, one of the things that's really unusual about their invasion of Florida is that their genetic diversity has actually increased since they invaded, which kind of flies in the face of what you'd expect from founder effects, generally speaking, when a population is mm. introduced. Because it's a small number of individuals, there's kind of this genetic bottleneck where there's not enough genetic material available for them to kind of be able to adapt as they would in a wild environment. But um, in the case of these annals, they've actually increased their genetic diversity as an invader. And that's because they've had lots of different introductions at different times from different places. So actually, yeah. they've kind of formed this like super group of really, really diverse genetic material. And uh, that's allowed them to really dominate in Florida. And on top of that, they've also now used Florida as a staging post to invade other places in the world. <laughs> so they're they're a pretty relentless species. They just keep on going. They do. I mean, we make it sound like it's a, <laughs> you make it sound like it's a, their master plan, but really, it's oh, just it us picking them up and taking them places. Yeah, no, the animals do have a master plan, but it's nothing to do with world domination. It's more about getting insects and bugs. Yeah, and uh, dealing with the pressures of sexual selection, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the um. Yeah, this this paper is from a team at Harvard. Um, Ambika Kamath and J.B. Losos. Did you know, Ben, that Harvard is in Cambridge, Massachusetts? Um, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I've sort of driven by it. And... Have you really? Wow, I just never knew it was in somewhere called Cambridge. It's kind of funny that like their best uni is also called in Cambridge. Anyway. But it's, oh, I don't know, man. You're just driving... Loads of things are in different Cambridges. There's loads of different Cambridges. <laughs> Drive past Portland and then Portsmouth and then Bangor. I went to Bangor, Maine. I mean, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> Why are people so uninvented with names? I don't know, but I saw Stephen King's house and it was well cool. Wow, is it super creepy? It was a little bit creepy. There's little, like, devilly demon things on the gate. Pretty cool. good. That's cool. <laughs> Completely irrelevant, but still cool hey yeah so um yeah the, the the scientists who did this paper are kind of interested in the consequences of individual variation and how how one animal behaves influences the ecological and evolutionary trajectory of the populations and species that they're a part of so they're kind of trying to get inside the mind of animals to understand how their behavior is going to affect their species yeah, I feel like that's something that's quite often missed with these sort of big evolutionary um, ideas, because you usually talk about evolution in terms of big landscape scales or big biogeographical barriers. Certainly the stuff we've talked about previously on the show with grass snakes or something has been a whole continent scale thing or a whole country scale thing with some of the boas I think we talked about. Yeah. Um, so it's nice to have it paired not even pared down, but just scaled down and to look at some of the finer details that can be playing in with the uh, competition and speciation on a sort of individual lizard scale, which is, well, and also to find that it potentially is quite important. Yeah, and it makes for a fascinating paper too. It's really cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, because you're connecting these two sort of quite disparate contexts, or at least they feel quite disparate, but they're actually heavily, heavily connected. Yeah, I think for me at least, it's kind of, it, it. it's not a natural step to think of things happening on such a small scale having such far-reaching impacts. You, you, you know, you don't think of lizards and their individual decision-making having Im- a big impact. You kind of think of this like, big herd of animals and these little individual decisions are largely inconsequential which i suppose they they kind of are in the grand scheme of things but papers like this just go to show that it is possible to unpick the influence of those tiny decisions when you look at them in the scale of a few hundred individuals yeah yeah and then connect it to a bigger picture it's yeah very neat Mm. because basically what we're getting at is so you've got sexual selection where there's over there is selection for certain traits tends to be uh, where you get sort of coloration differences and dimorphism from, right? Yeah. But they're looking at a sort of even prior to that is to be able to select from one individual to another individual, you have to first encounter that individual. So there's this underlying pattern that you've got to look at, which is the movement and encounters between individuals to even start looking at whether they're selecting or not yeah and that's exactly what this paper's done they first they're getting into the movements so whether females and males are encountering each other and how they're encountering each other and then they move on to looking at how the phenotypes as in what those uh, individuals are actually like and how successful different phenotypes or different characteristics are at reproducing and siring little tiny baby lizards yeah it's cool it is because like you say sexual selection is really widely studied so things like males fighting before they can have a right to mate with a female um Mm. the actual like female you know what they base their selection of males on like you say it could be colorful it could be body size um and then there's also the matter of the sperm which the male puts in the female actually making it to be the sperm which fertilizes an egg because there's even competition within the female um they kind of allude to we call that sperm competition post-copulatory competition but um it's not something i know very much about i find it all very confusing to think that that is a thing that can happen and that there's a there's a suggestion here that females can kind of select which sperm after it's been put after they've been inseminated which is like you know that's mind-blowing to me but don't know how much that's we know a, about that's that. a whole other level i need i need to be able to see the lizard and see it move to understand something <laughs> yeah exactly i'm a yeah. simple man yeah exactly um but yeah so the way they did that the way they sort of learned about the uh movements of these lizards and how that might impact their success in terms of mating was uh, a big mark recapture and behavioral observation study which is mm. exactly the best kind of fieldwork possibly imaginable i would say just go out and watch Ooh. those lizards yeah, it's got to be up there. Yeah. So they caught loads and loads of lizards and they marked them they... with beads so they could discern which lizard was which. Um, yeah, this is something that I hadn't... I, I wasn't aware of bead tagging as a um, a method. I was completely, completely ignorant of that. And I looked it up and it seems pretty good. <laughs> where where are the beads? Um... Like, just behind the back legs sort of area. 
What are they? How are they attached? With a little bit of uh, nylon-like, non non-reactive, non-degrading. Uh, what's the word? Not string. What's the thing that would be smaller than string? Thread. <laughs> and then you've got different coloured beads, and you can then colour the beads in different combinations and and colours, obviously, for individuals. So it has. Uh, sort of echoes of tagging birds, but instead it's on a lizard on this but, tiny bit of thread. But how is it? How is it attached into the lizard and out the? It's stitched oh, onto the lizard. Okay, okay, okay. I get you. Yeah, cool. But apparently, it doesn't interfere with uh, shedding and stuff. Yeah, which because I know with I suppose fish makes sense because they must they they sort of must shed in. A more sort of fragmented manner, I would imagine. Yeah, lizards do, and then lots of them eat it as well. I don't know if animals do that. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I know with fish they have these marks which are like, um, it's almost like a harpoon with like a a barbed bit. So you poke it in and then it catches in there and then obviously like the fish heals around it and it seemingly doesn't really affect them. Mm. So maybe it's similar to that, I don't know. I mean, it is, but with with thread. Hmm. I feel. It's that's not... what, it, or at least that's what it sounded like. But it wasn't a method that I, had, I was aware of. But it seems like quite versatile and sounding quite low impact as well. Yeah, it's cool. Because beads can be quite small because you're not ma- a huge distance away from the lizards. Yeah, you can use so... your, use your binoculars. So yeah, the um, as you say, they were trying to discover a load of different stuff. Um, Principally, they were looking at whether the behaviour and size of males affected how many females they encountered. Um, but do you want to talk a little bit about how they did all this? I, I want to talk a little bit about how they mapped um, encounters. Because that's what really matters here. It's not necessarily where the lizards are at any given time. It's the encounters between the lizards. Yeah. So they're going out, observing the lizards... And then making a sort of probability of each lizard being in a location. So you have a big grid of your study area, and each grid is assigned a probability of that lizard being in that square at a given time, sort of infilling the gaps between direct observations. Right? Yes. So they did that for every single lizard, for every single hour, for the entire study period. So fine scale, isn't it? So good. It's crazy. Doing... So now you can imagine, you can just picture in your in your head a sort of grid by grid with each box filled with the probability of a lizard being in there, and a sort of animate that so it changes every single hour. So you've got this sort of moving probability distribution of lizard location, and they did that for each and every single lizard, which is just yeah, it's awesome, superb. Combine all those together and it'll pull out or pick out areas where there was a probable lizard encounter. So basically, once the probability of two lizards being in a certain square reached a certain threshold, that'd be counted as a encounter. And they basically base that threshold on uh, direct observations of encounters and being able to work back to work out connectedness between trees in certain squares and how close 
locations are, and basically there was a cutoff. Anything above that could be counted as an encounter. So then you have all these encounters that are with all these individuals that you can then look at and see, compare which individuals were encountering each other, and when, how often, and all that good stuff. Because, of course, you're recapturing these lizards every month, so you've got updates on size, and they're all individuals, and that's all recorded as well. Mm, and some of the individuals were encountered, like, over 200 so times. Yeah. Yeah, what was it? It was great. Yeah, 128 times was the <laughs> top lizard, and top, then another one was found just the once. Yeah, I know, yeah. Well, that one that found once probably died, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it got taken by something, and the one that got found 128 times was just an attention seeker. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, friends. Um, and yeah, with this incredible information, they tested a few different hypotheses. They were looking at, well, they combined this with, um, they actually caught a load of females at the end and then tested their embryos to see which males had sired them. Um, yeah. Um, with all that information together, they could work out... And tested the males critically, so they had the genetics to compare to. Yeah, they had the genetics for Because that was what's so cool, if you've got this, this population where you know individuals, and you know everything about that individual within reason, you know, there is some uh, interpolation there, but really it's quite minor interpolation when you're thinking about all the things going on. So you can sort of create this timeline of individual lizards how they moved which ones met each other and then the actual outcome that's what you're talking about there with which males sired offspring yeah so their kind of hypothesis with that um females would bear offspring sired by males they encountered more often which kind of makes sense you'd think mm. if they're seeing an, an individual male more often it's more likely to be the father of their babies um there's quite a lot of logic to that and they actually found that, yes, that was the case. Um, females encountering males more were more likely to have offspring side by those males than other males in the study. Which which is logical. Yeah. And something else they were looking at was whether males encountered later in the breeding season were more likely to be the sires of offspring. So if they come across the females later in the year, closer towards them laying eggs... Are they more likely to sire the hatchlings? And they found that actually, yeah, that was also the case. Um, which mm, but that one's got a funny covariate about it because that's also the time that the lizards are going to be largest. Yes, because they've grown. And they did also find that larger males were being sort of selected for, right? Yeah, they did indeed. So that was kind yeah. of the last thing um, that they were looking for, which was whether or not the biggest males were more likely to sire offspring. And like you say, yes, they found that out. And there was difficulty in unpicking the effects of the bigger males and the later in the breeding season because they grow over the course of the season. Mm. But I think in terms of a selection question there, the the larger males being selected is a big part of that answer anyway. Yeah. The sort of timing in the season feels like it's less of a big deal apart from maybe exaggerating survivor differences. Yeah, and also um, bigger males and males which travelled farther were more likely to have more offspring, which makes sense, because if you range over a wider area, you bump into more females, you have more opportunity to sire offspring. Um, 
which is quite cool. So what it seems to suggest is that for male animals, if they want to try and be as reproductively active as possible, the best thing to do is either get big or go far or do both. Yeah, just to put some some numbers to that, uh, if we're talking about numbers of encounters, females encountered around five males, and males would encounter around three females. But males also encountered, well, on average, four and a half other males. So that sort of backs up the more movement is leading to more encounters. At least the half would be easy to beat in a fight. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it depends which half you get you get the bitey half <laughs> yeah but no they um got nothing left to lose well <laughs> i'm just a face so yeah and also one other thing they found out which was really interesting i found it cool was that 64 percent, or between 64 and 81 percent of females contain had clutches which contained babies side by more than one male yes and that's also backed up by the encounters with 78% of females encountering multiple individuals of the opposite sex. It's cool. So, yeah. Which... Yeah, it does look like there is a sort of multi-partner uh, thing going on here. Yeah, it's all a bit confusing to do the sperm selection and stuff like that as well. Mm. Yeah, so um, really cool study. Yeah, they really did show that, as they suggest at the beginning, this sort of encounter rate does have a big impact on which animals get to pass on their genes yeah yeah basically and it sort of overturns um some more traditional ideas of strict lizard territoriality where you'd have a female sort of covered by a, a male range and would have very limited choice um, because of the sort of competition between other males excluding other males. But really, you're seeing that the females are having choice because the male they're meeting with, what did I say? Around five males. So you do have, have that element of, of female choice, and the territoriality is not as strict as it possibly was previously thought. Mm. And there was a cool little aside they had in the discussion that was saying, um, I can't remember how it. What got about to it, the birds was... being monogamous or not monogamous? No, no, it was about um, how the territoriality bit. Um, because a male cannot completely exclude other males from getting to the female, as per the encounters shows. Um, it probably actually incentivizes the lizards not to uh, confront smaller individuals, but actually encourage smaller lizard, smaller male lizards to be their neighbours, as opposed to forcing everybody away. So it's a sort of selective territoriality, I suppose, would be one way of putting it. Mm. Because the larger males are going to be bigger competition so focus all your energy on getting rid of those guys but let the smaller ones in because you know that the females are also selecting for larger males so you've got a better chance against other smaller males that they're not forcing away Mm. it's confusing though isn't it because if there's there's still that kind of element of the sneaky cuttlefish where a little bit those those males you know it could be that 
maybe they're never going to be quite as reproductively successful as the big big males but i would wonder if you know smallish really small males could end up being kind of semi-successful because they're ignored by the large males and have an opportunity to kind of you know hang, unless, hang unless around. the female selection is strong enough hmm. that even alternate strategies from those males aren't particularly effective yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it it's an interesting it sort is of cool and it's um change to what was previously fought with them with a very strict territoriality because there are still elements there i mean it's still like males have bigger ranges than females and stuff like that there are still elements of what you would consider the traditional territorial Hmm. model i guess they talk about um because you mentioned the kind of this idea of like you know polygamous territoriality males controlling loads of females being turned on its head largely um, and mm. they mentioned in the discussion a couple of examples where mating strategies have been quite poorly understood in biology for a, a long time. And the example they used was in deer. And um, I can't remember which species it was, but deer are kind of well known generally for having a male who has a harem of females. And um, it was thought that there was kind of like the males were the ones selecting their group of females and then kind of, you know, herding them around and being in charge. But then after they did some GPS tracking on some deer, they found that females were quite regularly just leaving the group and going to a different group for whatever yeah. reason that they decided. Um, it was that, red deer. Was it red so deer? Elephus. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that kind of turned that whole thing on its head. And uh, the other example they used was birds, where birds previously were thought to be generally monogamous, having one partner for their whole lives. It turns out that a really high percentage of birds are cheating on their partners <laughs> and uh, actually having, like, you know extra couple mating sessions and then you know subsequently bearing offspring from different different males or yeah. you know, and the males are going off and so yeah it's quite cool i i really like that stuff that you know re-examine something that is supposedly known i always feel that sometimes um things like this sort of get they get built up from like one or two observations or one or two like studies to begin with and then they get reproduced in field guide after field guide mm. and so on and so forth and it sort of builds up and it gains so much momentum and uh, sort of baggage that it's quite hard to overturn it but then you have a paper like this that's just like okay well we're pretty much just going to explicitly test that <laughs> you're wrong <laughs> and we're not only going to test it by looking at where they go and who they're mating with we're going to do the genetic stuff on top of it and follow it from movement all the way to the end. Yeah. <laughs> Be like, hmm, that's not quite right here. That's, oh, that's really cool. Because usually I feel a lot of studies have to be based on the prior knowledge to uh, find anything particularly new because you've, you've got to make some sort of assumptions doing a study because you can't study everything. Yeah, definitely. I think but you're apparently right. you can pretty much study ev- <laughs> a lot of things are accounted for in this paper. A lot of things. Yeah, I think as you say, turning things on their head, old, you know, well, well-known tropes. Just because you've inadvertently revised them by them being written down lots of times doesn't make them true. So, should we mm. move on to the second paper? <laughs> So what do we have? We have Medina, Lossos and Maller 
2016 Evolution of Dorsal Pattern Variation in Crater Antillian Anolis Lizards, published in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society. Yep, another heavy hitter. Mm. So, a bit of a shift from movement and sexual selection. Now we're looking at patterning and what's sort of influencing that, right? Yeah, that's it. Looking at sort of how males and females are different um, in terms of their... It's quite confusing, isn't it, to think of... We're looking at sexual dimorphism in patterning and in polymorphism, which is, you know, are... Do females have more different patterns than males? So are, are p- female patterns more variable? That's the kind of thing we're looking at here. But um, well, all whether male patterning is more variable than females as well. Yeah, if that, well, yeah, exactly. So uh, yeah, but for this one, we're in a different area. So the previous paper was looking at invasive annals in Florida, brown annals, and this time we're in Cuba, Hispaniola, Jamaica, and Puerto Rico, um, which are the islands of the Greater Antilles. So we're just kind of east of Mexico. And uh, this study was slightly different. It wasn't field observations. It was uh, looking at museum specimens and analysing their patterns of 36 different species to try and see, as I said, how patterns differ between males and females and whether or not lizards from different ecomorphs, which we kind of touched on earlier, so lizards which live in different areas, have males and females which are more different than each other than other areas so for example you might find that for whatever reason species inhabiting the very tops of the trees have greater sexual dimorphism in their patterning than species at the bottom and that's what they were trying to unpick in this paper yeah it's it's another word i i don't know ecomorph is almost it's sort of niche isn't it Yes, yeah, it is. It's just yeah. a, it's just like a fun textbook way of saying niche, isn't it? Like it makes it a bit more. Um, I think because they're so clearly defined, and it's a really good textbook example. And they've been repeated, aren't they? They're they're ones that exist in on different islands with different species, but the same niches uh, reoccur. Yeah, it's crazy. So like you know, yeah. an an anal ends up on an island, and within you know however many million years, ten, fifteen, twenty. It's turned into six species or more, which inhabit different areas. And well, that's I think that's the trick. You gave a big number of millions of years, but I think um, a lot of the work with them has shown that it actually happens on much shorter timescales if the if the selective pressure is there. Well, I guess that stands to reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking of the numbers I read in terms of actually. Yeah, I mean that's. I think it was 50 million years ago or something like that. I can't think Annals first appeared. I don't want to, don't quote me on that. It's probably wrong. Um, but yeah, anyway. Aside. The, point, the point is that it happens and it happens again and again. Yeah. And therefore, you've got nice defined ecomorphs or niches that you can use and look at the characteristics of each of those. And there is a suggestion that that will be consistent across all of them and, you know, be be... Uh, indicative of a greater pattern across all the sort of lizard species. Yeah. And uh, in this paper, they were looking at six classic ecomorphs, which are grass bush. So that's annals which 
scuttle around mostly bush. on the floor. Yeah, grass, grassy bush ones. <laughs> trunk and ground, and that's the trunk of a tree. So ones which kind of spend their time between the trunks of trees and on the ground. Quite often, trunk ground animals will sit on the bottom of a tree facing down, watching the floor for insects. Then you got Interesting life. Yeah, I mean, it sounds kind of like... Yeah, it's one way to go, isn't it? And then you've got you've got the trunk lizards, which are you know trunk specialists. They scuttle up and down the tree. Trunk. And when you look at them, they run around to the far side of the tree, so you can't see them. <laughs> Selfishly, and uh, yeah, the trunk crown, which is lizards, which spend their time between the top of the trunk and the kind of upper right upper reaches of the branches. Crown giants, which live you know right up in the canopy, and they tend to be ginormous compared to the other ones. And then you've got twig, which is ones which live on the outer reaches of thin branches and are generally quite skinny. Mm. So that kind of you can see there that even one tree is the kind of entire environment, which is shocking. You know, these aren't lizards which are different between savanna and forest and, you know, riparian systems. These are lizards which are different depending on where they hang out on a tree. Again, it's the cool sort of different... You're working on different scales again, aren't you? You're looking at speciation within a forest, within such closely related lizards. It's very cool. It's yeah. just a totally different... I'm not used to thinking on these scales with species. That's No, and it suggests, doesn't it, like the diversity and abundance of insects in these areas must just be absolutely insane to support such a breadth of lizard species in such a small area. Yeah. Yeah, and occur in a you know, require a sort of diversity of approaches to get the most out of. Yeah, so as we said, they analysed the patterns of 36 species and... 696 dead lizards. Yeah, in alcohol, all of them. Yep. Boozy, boozy dead lizards. <laughs> they had pictures taken of them and then they sort of... They had like 11 categories that they sort of assigned whether it was this category or that category or whatever. Yeah. So they had Images and coloration stuff, and they had observed uh, categoric variables as well. Yeah, yeah. To so there was, each, each you know, they were region. they could have either, you know, they could have stripes, they could have chevrons, they could have diamonds, and yeah, they were looking to see. Yes, that was like yes, no answers, wasn't it? And then there was other things which were continuous. Anyway, the methods were quite complicated, and um, you know, I think we don't, yeah, not overly of importance, but suffice to say that they. Really, you know, they took good photos of these lizards, they analysed them on the computer, they scored them, um, either by eye or using ImageJ, and uh, yeah, they were trying to work out whether or not lizards from different ecomorphs had males and females which were more different, and they found that they were. They did They did actually find out that um, there was a tendency for lizards which frequented lower regions, so trunk and ground and grass bush so these lizards which are hanging out at the very bottom of the trees or even in the grass and bushes surrounding the trees actually had males and females which were more different compared to arboreal species meaning that the arboreal species the males and females looked similar the lower down species the males and females tended to be different yes crown giant twig and trunk anoles tended also to have less dorsal patterning overall yes yeah, so the ones Which, near the top were more plain. Yeah, so you've got plain ones, and then they're going as they're going down, they're getting slightly perhaps more patterned, and then towards the bottom, you're also getting a bigger dimorphism between males and females. Yeah. 
which is quite a neat pattern to find. Yeah, it's really cool. Because it... you're looking at, what was it, 20 out of 36 species had some level of dimorphism. Or, sorry, significant dorsal dimorphism. Okay, so we've talked about how 20 of the 36 species had significantly different patterns between males and females, and that varied between animals which inhabited the higher regions of trees to the lower regions of trees. That is, the lower ones, the males and females, were more different than each other than the higher inhabiting ones. So put that aside for just a second, and we're going to talk about the other element of the paper, which sounds similar, but is actually different, and that is the sex-dependent polymorphism. Mm. And so what this describes is whether or not the two different sexes have differently variable patination. So do... Yeah, so it's the difference between intersexual variation and intrasexual variation. Yes, Ben. That's Yeah. Those words sound the same on the radio though. <laughs> 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 so uh yeah. This one is looking at whether or not females had more variable patterns than males or vice versa. And what they found was that in 16 of the 36 species, the females had more colour pattern variations than males. While Apart, apart from that one species. Yeah, so in 16, in 16 it was females. Like more, <laughs> yeah, and then there was that one species, which was A. porcatus. Yeah. Which I googled, and they're pretty jazzy. The fee, You know, the males can be banded or stripy. They're, they're nice and green. Stylish. Yeah. And then there was 19 other species where there wasn't a difference. They were kind of equally polymorphic between males and yeah. females. Um, but also critically, polymorphism isn't related to ecomorph, unlike the dimorphism. Or just the patterning in general. No, which is quite cool. Mm. So there's something else going on there that's deciding, or that's, that's selecting for more polymorphic females right yeah yeah but we don't really have an idea what that potentially could be no it's a bit of a mystery but they are yeah. more different than males which is a cool finding and, yeah um, so gone I'm, d- I'm just trying to think there's this good you know think through the reasons why that could be ah and thinking that Females are obviously going to be living in a slightly different sort of niche slash ecology to the males. So maybe there's a slight greater diversity of stuff going on in that niche for the females specifically, where some need to make use of slightly different vegetation types or use slightly different patterning to avoid things. You know, there's got to be some like within sex niche separation there to warrant different patterning right yeah unless of course it's a sexual selection thing which i think they do mention don't they they talk about how it would it seems unlikely that sexual selection alone would drive these changes especially as you know the females which are i mean all of these animals pretty much are cryptically patterned right yeah um and it'd be unusual for sexual selection to favor secretive patterns because they're boring like Lizards, generally speaking, like big, bright, show-off colours. Unless yeah, but they're I the think exception. The, I think the... I mean, that 
I know that they're cryptically coloured, but we thought adders were cryptically coloured. But then they actually have a level of aposematic, uh, aposematism to their to their zigzags and stuff. Mm. Like just because it looks one way doesn't mean that it's purely acting in that way either. Yeah, I know. I can't imagine that animals are aposematic in any way, though. No, I'm not saying they're aposematic, but I'm saying that they could be a secondary, uh, not obvious coloration thing being mixed in there, mm. where actually there is sexual selection for more cryptic-looking ones or less cryptic-looking ones. Well, yeah, and actually, yeah. Just because it doesn't seem to us to yeah. make much well, sense. Like, it, it yeah, you're just right. could. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the visual system of an animal is going to be different than us. So those white lines, I don't know. There's probably something oh, written about this that I Has anybody read. done any UV things? That's what I'm saying, yeah. So maybe yeah. to these animals, those white lines are like, you know, humongous arrows saying, you know, I'm as sexy as they come. Check me out. I'm I'm fluorescent white. It's possible. Um, but who knows? I don't know. I don't know that anyone's done much of that stuff on animals. I've never... Uh, I mean, to be honest, animals are a bit of a scary subject that I haven't really breached before this, so... But I don't. I've never seen much. <laughs> it's quite daunting. Yeah, I I did read a lot about color change a few years ago, and I don't remember seeing any stuff about animals. But I'm ready to be corrected. It's it's very possible that someone's looked at that. Yeah. If if there was a group of lizards that it has been looked at for, yeah, it would be these guys. Yeah, yeah. It was probably the Losos lab as well. We just haven't seen it. So if that is the yeah. case, I apologise. <laughs> So it's cool. It's regardless of the actual answer, it's still cool to think about. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, really awesome. Um, it's confusing. Like it's again, it's another case where the simplest explanation isn't true. Yeah, but there's also really neat patterns that seem almost universally sensible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is. It is confusing. Uh, I mean, yeah, just the fact that diamorphism is related to their ecology. It's yeah. cool. It is cool. Because, yeah, again, it's, it's like... It's fantastically wicked, isn't it? To think that environments changing a species in... I was going to say quite a big way, but it's sort of quite a subtle way in some ways, too. Because it's it's only affecting... Well, I mean, it's affecting both halves, but both halves differently. Yeah. And also, I like the fact that even though there's this crazy amount of variation in the species and their behaviour and ecology, there's also this niche partitioning within the species and the males and females. Yeah. Some males and female animals have different body shapes to inhabit slightly different areas. So there's even more fine tuning of the niches. That yes, that was I'd completely forgotten about that. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of other uh, connections, uh, sexual dimorphism. Like, so you've got size, body proportions, foraging behaviour, and a whole bunch of locomotion stuff. Yeah, and territoriality, and so you've got a whole combination of phenotypic characteristics that uh, that the difference between the sexes. That's just again, it's looking at a slightly lower scale. You'd think of just all right. We look at the species is your unit of investigation, and being like, okay, what this species? What is this species using? But that would be missing a lot of the variation. That might be critical to that species survival. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I mean, again, going back to conservation, like we always tend to do, you would need to know this stuff because if you just supply, let's say, you're just looking at it and you happen to get a 
a sample that's biased towards males or something, you're not going to be doing the whole population justice in terms of what it needs. No, absolutely. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? The longer that time goes on, it just seems like we're learning the complexities of life uh, more than we could have ever thought. That sounds the really more, like... Whoa. The more you know, the more you know that you don't know everything. Whoa, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there was a better way of saying that. The less you know, mean. the more you don't know. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Deep. Deep. Wow. Well, my mind's been blown. I'm supposed to go and catch snakes after this. I don't think I'm going to be able to. Just oh, be yeah. Like philosoph- that's, the best state. that's the best state to find snakes I'm going to be just philosophizing. Whoa. Perpetual mind blownness <laughs> you'll see a little you'll see a little escalapian on the ground and just you just stare at its little face for a couple it. of hours wow. and you'll forget what you were doing wow uh so i think we can conclude that animals are confusing yeah the only thing i wanted to say that they suggested for future stuff is to start looking at how uh different phenotypes and things have different survival rates and different predation because that would help explain the patterning and the effects of the patterning in different areas. Yeah. So that would give another dimension there because of course it's one thing existing, it's another thing being particularly successful. Yeah. In the immortal words of Dexter Holland, there's more to life than only surviving. Yes. Almost definitely. <laughs> <laughs> But yet, survival is a prerequisite. So, you know, don't ignore it. Exactly. So, um, shall we put in a little theme tune? Right. Species of the Bi-Week. Get hyped, everybody. It's Species of the Bi-Week. So... This week we're doing Grey, Meza, Ayazaro, Poe and Dioka, 2016, a new species of semi-aquatic Anolis, Squamata dactoilidae, from Oaxaca and Veracruz, Mexico, published in the very own British Herpetological Journal. It's just called Herpetological Journal, but it is the British one. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. not very often we read one from our very own Herpetological Journal, so yeah, if you don't already subscribe to that journal, get it, it's great. Yeah, uh, more anolis because, of course, and uh, where is it? Southern Mexico. So we're looking at a place that already has over 50 species and uh, over 30 of those are endemics. So talk about a rich lizard hotspot. Sounds lovely. It's like, yeah, it's boiling. So, um, yeah, we did look at a few other animals before we elected to talk about this one, didn't we? But the other ones were a bit boring. <laughs> were they? I can't even remember what they were. Exactly, Ben. That says it all. They were just like they've, just, they've been forgotten, lost to time. Anolis drabius. This guy, holy smokes! Yeah, it's cool. You know, you haven't seen the artwork for this episode yet. Oh man! Even I'm waiting to see that. That's awesome. No, I haven't. Yeah, so they have described a new species, and it's a big lizard. It's 90 millimetres snout vent length, which doesn't sound like much, but it's big Did for you say, an animal. You, say, you said 90, right? 90 millimetres. Yeah, okay. I did Part say... of me heard 19, and I was like... 
90. It's quite, it's quite small. <laughs> 19 millimeters. It's the size of a human thumb. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> no. You've never seen anything like it. <laughs> ah! It's trampled our crops. No. <laughs> Where's St. George when you need him? <laughs> it was his birthday the other day, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's get on to it. This is a brand new species, and they've called it Anolis purpuronectes. Purpuronectes. Which means the purple swimmer. Which is pretty much um, a perfect name. Yeah. It's so good. I love it. It's probably the best name we've had on the show, I would argue. Um, I can't honestly remember all the ones we've had. But there was that silver boa that was quite good. Oh yeah, the Kylobothrus. Yeah, and actually there was that ghost snake from Madagascar that we had. Ghost snake, Lolo. 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 Iolo. Yeah, that was cool. Madagascar Iophis Lolo. Yeah. I think. Oh, there's so many species to remember my mind. <laughs> I know. It's too early for any of that, mate. Oh. Don't, because um, people will realise we don't remember everything. Uh, I can hardly remember. What the, where am I? Conception Bank Silver Bow was Chylobothrus Argentum. There you go. What did Argentum mean? Silver. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Still, Wicked this names. is cooler than that, in my opinion. So, um... Anyway, they have a really cool purple dewlap compared to the similar species Anolis barkeri, which has a red one. They kind of thought that yeah. this species was Anolis barkeri for a long time, but uh, they were wrong because Anolis barkeri is red and this one's purple. Get yeah, it. but you know what the other problem is? In preservation, the colours are lost, so it's super difficult to go back to um, museum specimens if you were just doing it on colour. Uh, yes, that makes a lot of sense. They do have some yeah. some different scalation, but it's relatively slight, isn't it? Yeah, they do. So, uh, but they are genetically distinct, also. Um, but it is yes, it is a sister species to the Barkeri, which you know makes sense given that they look the same, except for one's red and one's purple. But yeah, you're right. That's that's an interesting point. Um, it goes to show, doesn't it? Sometimes you've got to go to Mexico and scrabble around near a river and look for a new species. Yeah, and find an aquatic Anolis lizard. She's just wicked. Yeah, so they're really awesome looking, aren't they? They've like got this purple dewlap and a really cool purple wash over the whole body. It's like got a purpley hint to it. And uh, I was reading this paper late last night, and um, I said to Maya, I was like, Maya, check out this lizard. <laughs> and she said, that's a lizard. You love reptiles too much. <laughs> <laughs> That's nonsense, because this is one of the most beautiful lizards you're going to see. <laughs> so, it's got like orange around the eye and orange on the belly and bits of little white speckling. As it turns out, the layman might disagree, but well, mine's not even a layman at all. Like, she knows loads about reptiles, but yeah, not everyone gets as excited as us, but whatever. I think <laughs> I was not the, perturbed. The point is, 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 it's late at night and you're like, yo, look at this lizard. <laughs> Shut up, I'm trying to sleep. Yeah. It's the fifth lizard this hour. <laughs> <laughs> so good, though. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so the way you can tell that you're looking at an Anolis purpurinectes or an Anolis barkeri 
is that they're the only ones with a semi-aquatic ecology. So if you see an animal going for a swim, the chances are it's one of these little amigos. Yeah, unless it's like a crocodile or something completely different. Like, narrow it down to probably genus before making that sort of decision. Yeah, no. I said if I you see an animal going for a swim, you know. <laughs> Obviously oh, it's not you... a crocodile. Sorry. <laughs> What's that? There's a reptile What's in, the in the water. It's an animal. <laughs> That's a dog. <laughs> They're not the only oh thing gosh. in Mexico that swims. <laughs> 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 so no, it's That's another dog. That's another dog. <laughs> it's got a pur- it's got purple around the. That's its collar. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in terms of their ecology, there was quite a big section on their ecology, which is quite cool. Most of it was just saying, you know, there's you know broadly similar to Anuris barkeri that they already know a bit. Well, about. it's it's presumed that they're similar to barkeri. I think this is the sort of stuff where. It's it is quite heavily uh, caveated, saying, you know, we we suspect it's the same, but it's the sort of stuff that will then get reproduced in summary, <laughs> and we end up with the oh yeah yeah it just lives like Barkeray. <laughs> Don't be so cynical, Ben. Everyone's going to be very careful, fastidious. Well, scholar, that's the thing is, they've been very careful here. Yeah. <laughs> I just uh, you yeah. know Chinese whispers. You might be right. Yeah, you might be. L- right. Yeah, little little is known of the ecology, although we assume similarities based on collection of well the new form only along streams. One thing so, they do know yeah. though is that they love to sleep on rocks. But then who doesn't? That's what I said. You know, a long day at work, come home, you know, you've been swimming about all day, you're tired. What do you do? You have a nice lay down on your favourite rock. Wait, where does it say this? I... All of the specimens I was gl- collected sleeping on low vegetation. No, 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 no. I gleaned this from a paper. Eight were collected on boulders or logs. Yes, boulders. And seven were collected on boulders, logs, or wet leaf litter. Near waterfalls. They... <laughs> Hang on a second. No, they're talking about the ones that weren't collected. Ecology and habitat. Eight were collected on boulders or logs and are along streams. Seven were collected on boulders. See, it just says boulders, loads. They love boulders. <laughs> they love boulders. They love boulders. All of I'm the specimens you. were from vegetation. Here we go. Oh, look, here we go. Mayer, 1968, stated that McDougall collected his specimens in Oaxaca at elevations of four to 500 metres in high rainforest and that the lizards were taken as they moved about on boulders in the streams. So they love boulders. They love them. They can't get enough. They're boulder specialists. <laughs> Mir, Mir Ixquatan Chiapas. Here you go. Last, very last chapter. Mir, near Ixquatan Chiapas, we found a Barkeri sleeping primarily on boulders. Wait, Barkeri? Oh. You've just fallen into oh, the trap that no. I said that you shouldn't oh, fall no. into. Oh, that is a that is a herpetologist faux pas. People are going to be writing that in their field guides. Oh, please don't. Boulder me. specialist. <laughs> oh, God. Only ever found on boulders. So, yeah, a brand new species of animal, which is really nicely coloured and is generally overall super cool. Um, yeah, really handsome species from Mexico. Yeah, a real stunner. And that concludes our episode on animals. I think so, yeah. Two exceptionally cool papers and oh. an exceptionally cool new species. Yeah, before we get off annals, actually, 
Um, if that wasn't enough annoying for you annual fans, check out annual annals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which um, is... Um, okay, once again, but slower. So there's a blog called Annal Annals. It's great written down. It's really clever written down. Uh, it's hard to say, but it's a really active blog and it keeps you updated on annual research and fun goings on in the world of annals. Um... I've written here it's jolly good psychom stuff, which must be how I speak late at night when I've had lots of cups of tea. <laughs> jolly good psychom. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like I had, a, I had a flick through. There's like a variety of articles, published new stuff all the time, and uh, yeah, just generally like really good thing. It's kind of run by James Stroud, who is a PhD student, um, studying annals so yeah at florida uni so yeah hashtag jolly good psychom hashtag jolly good psychom yeah and so yeah go check out our annals well worth a read like really genuinely very good and so that brings us on to our any other business of which there's quite a lot this week this by week yes um shall i start where do you want to should i start with some corrections yes start with corrections Okay, cool. So, um, in the last episode, I made a huge faux pas and said that Dimetrodon was a dinosaur. But I think I might have also said I'm not sure if it's a dinosaur. I like to think I did. Uh, yeah, unless I cut it out and just repeated the bit that said, it's a dinosaur, it's a dinosaur. <laughs> Tom is an idiot. And some is... reverb and stuff. Can you stop subverting the way I, the way I present myself when you edit? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows Ben's the clever one. <laughs> Tom's the stupid one. Well, no, the thing is it would switch week to week. Yeah, I do try and make you sound like an idiot. Sometimes it's just like, Ben, right, yeah, right. You're so clever, don't you? Um, the power of editing. Yeah, but uh, anyway, Dimetrodon's not a dinosaur, it's a synapsid. Uh, thank you, Cluellen and Nick Sakic, for correcting me on that. Um, the mammals today are but one branch of the synapsida, which is a humongous vertebrate group with 300 million year history. And Dimetrodon is a pre mammalian synapsid. Um, yeah. They kind of dominated the land vertebrate fauna of the Permian. But then. They lost ground to dinosaurs and other archosaurs. So once but then again, they we came just... back in a big way. Yeah, the mammals. Yeah, the underdog. <laughs> we always got to love an underdog. But yeah, once again, if it's extinct, we should have just left it to Tetsu. Uh, those guys actually know what they're talking about. <laughs> well, you, you did notice when when you were talking about that, I just stayed deadly silent. <laughs> you just get really yeah yeah yeah. You just like, like completely leave this. you on my own, and I just keep talking, and it gets worse and worse and worse. So yeah. Um, Another, well, not so much correction, but just like a point was we were talking about mixophagy, where those uh, caribou beetles oh, yeah. were mixophagous. And we were like, what does that mean? Do they mix it up? Do they only eat blended foods? No, it's apparently relating to mucus. So mm. mixophagy refers to a diet comprised of slime molds, algae and or the slimy growing ends of fungal hyphae and spores. It's not a diet that I really want to test out. Do you never but, get? Uh, I can respect the beetle that goes for it. <laughs> Do you never just give things a little lick when you're walking in the woods? Like, oh, what's that? Oh, slime mold. <laughs> slime mold. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, Joshua Udin, thank you very much for your correction on that. Really interesting. Weirdly, we couldn't find that. That's like, that's not on the internet. You actually have to ask Joshua if you want to know that fact. Um, yeah, 
while I'm still going on a stream of consciousness, um, should we thank our new Patreons? Yes. Massive, massive thank you uh, to... we got two new Patreons. Paul Snelling, a.k.a. Ben's dad. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, big up, Dad. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, does he listen to the podcast? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, shout out. Hello. You, you're Thank- not going to fund something you don't listen to. Yeah, very true. My dad listens also, so let's do a da- dad shout out. Big up, Dad. How's it going? <laughs> um, yeah, so thanks very much. And also Aldo Cortese, who very graciously discovered the podcast and then decided to donate within a matter of minutes, which is awesome. So thank you very much, Aldo. Well, I would hope it's not, like, I hope he listens to a full episode before deciding. He heard your sweet syrupy voice and he was like, oh, sold. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> Aldo's from New Zealand and has a really cool name. <laughs> that we agree. <laughs> uh, what else? So I would like to mention a couple of other herpetology podcasts if I could. Um, Wildlife Cake and Cocktails I've been listening to. Uh, it's really cool. They have like they're good hosts. And they have kind of a different format to us. They have like a roundtable discussion and they get experts in various things on. Um, I just listened to the one where they interviewed some vets who were talking about viruses in snakes. And it made me freak out that all my pet snakes had viruses. Uh, but it was really interesting. Yeah, but they might have like viruses that make them like people more. Like that one that people get for ta- uh, for cats, but um, in snakes for people. Could cats be any more sinister? Honestly, when are we going to wake <laughs> up and realise... <laughs> They're gonna give you a. It's not. A, it's not a virus, though, is it? It's a fungus. No, it's not. It's a. What is it? Tox, toxoplasmosis. Yeah, it's like mycelium it's grows in your brain and changes your behaviour. It's like being a zombie. It's like that. Apart from you, just like cats. Apart from, I think it makes you dumber as well. Well, that liking cats go hand in hand. <laughs> oh, steady. Zing. No, I don't mean it. Cats are fine. Uh, so yeah. Uh, check out Wildlife Cake and Cocktails great podcast and also we got a shout out on another podcast I listen to called Morelia Python Radio um, so yeah big up Rob Stone thanks for that he was a guest host gave us a shout out and uh, that's a great podcast if you're into sort of the herpetocultural side of things if you like keeping snakes mm. check out Morelia Python Radio Owen and Eric really good it's like really fun chat show quite long episodes so it's great if you get a long drive in yeah yeah so check that out it's all, all herp podcasts that have been niche partitioned. Yeah, it's that. like nature has selected. Like, no, we didn't plan to do different things, but actually, there's very little overlap in what we're all doing, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's it's. I was going to say art imitating nature, but that's that makes it sound all very grandiose when it's just people talking about reptiles and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all you know reptile podcasts. I mean, why not? I, I'm glad there are other ones because I don't want to listen to my own voice. It's unbearable. Well, no, you have to sit through it once, maybe twice already. Yeah, exactly. It's painful. Um, right. So anything else? Yeah. What you got? I've got two papers to mention. Oh. Um, because I'm not going to mention them in the next news niche, I don't think, because I'll probably forget. So I'm getting them done because... It's been not all that long since I started talking about p-values and problems in statistics. I'm going to bring up another statistical paper so I don't have to do it in news niche and dedicate an entire section to stats. Which is by some of the same people as before, but Fiddler et al. Which uh, they published a, like, uh, what's it, something like 8 to 10 points or 12 points on something of 
stuff you can do to improve transparency of statistical reporting. So basically, it's the, hey, we've flagged up some issues here in this paper, and here are some cool solutions, which I have been looking, you know, I've been looking at this paper recently, and it has been very useful to be like, hmm, what are the things I should be pri prioritizing and make sure they're absolutely 100% clear when writing up results. So big props to that paper. Cool. Um, and actually, I'm not going to say the second. Well, uh, see, now I've mentioned it. Is it about crocodiles? It's not about crocodiles, okay. no. Okay, yeah, as long as you're not going to talk about crocodiles. Okay. I don't want to hear um, about crocodiles right now. <laughs> it's a paper that's just popped up by Rios Saldana. I think you'd say that. Apologies for name pronunciation. But basically, it's looking at whether fieldwork studies um, are more or less prominent now than they have been in the past. Oh, I saw and surprise, surprise, there has been a 20% decrease in field studies like since the 80s. was like 800% increase in modelling studies. Yeah, 800 and 600% increases in modelling and data analysis studies. Which isn't a problem in of itself, because all those studies are important, obviously. But there is a worry that if you neglect fieldwork and new uh, data on biodiversity and things, all your modelling and big data analysis stuff is going to be kind of lacking eventually. And there have been previous papers calling for more biodiversity assessment things. So, hey, this is a sort of early wake up that this might become a problem if we don't sort of fix it. Yeah. And again, potential problem with this focus on high impact journals, maybe, and how a lot of fieldwork stuff or you know fieldwork heavy papers are pushed down the ways to uh, lower impact journals maybe because they're more species-specific or sort of smaller scale, and the big journals may be wanting more holistic, big um, laws and, and big patterns and that sort of thing. And even before you get to the big journals, it's the grant funding bodies that are deciding where funding is going based on the likely impact of the research. And if it's not going to end up in, you know, Prop B or Nature, they're not going to fund it. And that might be the research which is of benefit to species yeah. conservation, like you say. Yeah, so just as a comparison, that's 55% of top-tier papers are fieldwork, have element of fieldwork, and 93% of lower, quote-unquote, lower journals are fieldwork-based. So it's pretty, uh, it's pretty drastic. But that being said, the first paper we talked about today had a big chunk of fieldwork in it. And that was in uh, Proc B. So. Yeah, it did. Like, that was a hell of a lot of field work. Uh, Amber it's a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> Amber Kamath collected the data by herself, I think. Which is, like, yeah, awesome. It, just walking around the forest well, for I'm sure there was months, like observing all lizards. Yeah, I'm sure there must have been, like, uh, people helping in the field. Oh, yeah, there's loads of people helped in the field. But nevertheless, like, you know, you know. The, the author was out there doing. <laughs> now you've suddenly got to coordinate loads of people. <laughs> yeah, very true. Just yeah. as difficult, yeah. if not more difficult at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's wrap it up, shall we? You happy with that? Yeah. Got anything else to say? Yeah, very happy. Uh, no, I've 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 had my little soapbox at the end about stats and field work. Well, I thought <laughs> I thought you did very well, Ben. It was succinct. 
good. <laughs> it was actually really cool. I'd forgotten that uh, I read that thing, which is slightly alarming given how much field work's in my PhD, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, the, I think the point is that it's good just because the impact factor isn't there or perhaps the funding isn't promoting it doesn't make it any less valuable. And if anything, papers like this put an emphasis saying this is very valuable and without it, a lot of the other stuff is much harder to do. Yeah. Yeah. So we need we need all of it, but uh, it shouldn't just be, you know, cast aside essentially. No. So uh, yeah, I think on that note, shall we say if you want to get in touch with us, you can get in touch via email, herphighlights at gmail dot com. We love hearing from people. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can support us on patreon dot com slash herphighlights. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And yeah, and if you want a specific episode on a specific... Uh, what's the right word? Topic. Clade. Oh. Topic. Or, t- or, t- or topic would be a better way of saying it. Yeah. yeah like... I was just trying to group an animal, but then I couldn't say, like, species. Taxon. I couldn't say genus. But taxon probably would have done it. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, if, if this is that... It... If there's an episode you want and you're a Patreon, we'll do it regardless of what the literature is. So, yeah, it might we could go back in time. That might actually be quite a cool one. Acrocordus. Yeah. Well, yeah. Don't pay for Acrocordus though because it's coming anyway. Is it? I don't think it is because no one's done anything on it. Oh the yeah. The Acrocordus episode will only be done if someone <laughs> really, really wants it, and even then, we can't promise it's good. <laughs> It's a snake that looks like an elephant's trunk. It doesn't make any sense. How are people not studying that? <laughs> well, they have. Well, they've done bits. I was like, they've done bits. They've done the cool respiration stuff and things. There are bits, but it's yeah. older stuff, so it requires a bit of impetus for us to do. I want to see some underwater radio telemetry. Sonar. <laughs> Sonar. What? <laughs> Okay, yeah, anyway, so uh, where was I? Facebook.com slash herphighlights. Twitter at herphighlights. Interact with us on the internet. That's what people do these days. Yeah, hashtag jolly good psychom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in shame. Let's finish there. <laughs> Thanks for listening. two main sections which are you know they sound similar there's now there's now a dog who is like go on (laughs) not the dog get out of here dog we're just getting the grips with this confusing science (sighs) i've got to get rid of her oh coochie come on there you go come on